Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we'll, uh, actually, let's open up in a word of prayer. Uh, Katie, you want to pray for us? Okay, now we'll start. So we're in, we're picking up in Genesis 17 um, tonight, and we're going to get as far as we can without um, being here all night. But I have enough prep to, for sure for tonight. As we go, so quick review, Genesis 1 through 4, we see the creation and the fall. Genesis 5 through 9, we see humans defying God, and God floods the earth. And then in Genesis 10 and 11, God spreads them out. And in Genesis 12 through 16, we see him focusing in on this character named Abraham and Abraham's family. And we spend more time on Abraham than we do really on any other narrative in the Bible. Um, and tonight we're going to deal with uh, the covenant being given in 17. Um, in 18, there's intercessory prayer. So we see the first prayer where a human being talks to God and God you know, listens and hears it, and we get to see, so we get this beautiful model of prayer. And then in Genesis 19, the thing that Abraham was praying about in 18 is Sodom and Gomorrah getting wiped out. Um, so we'll start off in Genesis 17. When, Abra when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me, blameless. So this has been... 75 years since leaving Haran um, in chapter 12, verse 4, uh, in Egypt. Um, Abram's kind of saves Lot, and there's this promise there. And then he spent 10 years in Canaan, and we see that in uh, chapter 16, verse 3. So that means Abram's was 86 years old when Ishmael was born uh, in chapter 16, verse 16. Uh, and then we had the, the deal with Hagar and Sarai and Ishmael and that promise. Uh, and then at 99, God promises again. So God's talked to Abraham now. This is his third time with a pretty, well, and then the time before, which isn't really in there, which he says, leave Haran. Um, so he's told to leave Haran, and then he's told to that he's going to be the father of, of countless descendants in chapter 16 and now here we see in verse in chapter 17 we're going to get another um, set of promises from God and this time the promises get even more specific and he actually asks Abram to seal the covenant with him so Abram's been 25 years now where he's been following the Lord so he's a veteran believer he's still going to make mistakes as we'll see in chapter 20 um, but he's still not there he's going to live to a ripe old age so he still has about 75 more years of his life left to live um, so he's going to be fairly old and but he doesn't know that at this point in his life um, and he's asked to walk blameless um, the all i am almighty god is the first time we sit see el shaday 
uh, which is in a song, right? Al Shaddai, Al Shaddam. Is that an old song? All right. Um, it's one of the names of God, and this name of God in particular is uh, really translated pretty well. I am Al, an almighty God. So he names himself. God is, another way to in- interpret Shaddai, and it, actually there's a lot of debate. There's five different interpretations of this world word, because you can do Shaddai, and then you can do Shad plus I, and then you can do Shad, and then you can, so I won't get into all that. One interpretation of this word is God is sufficient. So I am sufficient for you. Um, and you know, it's been a while. It's been 25 years since he's been promised this son that he hasn't gotten yet. So Abram's job has been to walk faithfully with the Lord, knowing that there's a promise that he's not going to see the fulfillment of, or he hasn't seen the fulfillment of. And God's just saying, the first thing he says to him after all this time is, I'm sufficient for you. So that interpretation makes sense. Second interpretation is similar. God, the God who pours out blessings. Um, So not just sufficient, but overflowingly sufficient. So the God who pours out blessings. And then the third interpretation of this is, is with the shad, which means chest, which could mean a I am the God of the power or a nourishing God, depending on a male or female, but I am the God that gives out of myself. Um, a third, a fourth interpretation is a God of power. I'm the almighty God is the way we have it interpreted in our Bibles. And then the fifth interpretation of it is God, and I like this one, God whose hand is on everything. And that's when you do the Shah instead of Shad. Um, it's not a chest, it's a hand. Um, so there's this interpretation of God whose hand is on everything. All the interpretations, I think, are kind of wonderful. Um, and it's wonderful that God picks a phrase like El Shaddai, which means those can mean all of those things depending on who's reading it and maybe what they need. This is the time we see this name in Exodus 6.3 and much more often throughout the Bible, God refers to himself as Jehovah. So this is kind of an interesting thing when he comes to Abraham, he uses this rather personal name and he says to Abram walk before me Um, it's now this time when God comes to Abram he's basically saying it's time for you to do something so God covenant alone back in Genesis 15 God waited for Abram to be kind of out of it and then he covenanted with him and this time he's going to do the same thing to be blameless is probably poorly translated and I think it causes some misunderstandings our job as Christians is not to be perfect which is how we interpret blameless. Literally, that should be translated to be whole or to be filled, which makes a lot of sense if, if he says, I am all sufficient or I am overpouring for you and you should be filled. So I should be all you need is really what that looks like. Or if you interpreted it that way, it would be, I am God sufficient, walk before me and be sufficiently filled and be whole. And I think that's kind of just a beautiful way to interpret it. So there's the the Hebrew on the first verse. Verse 2, and I will make my covenant between you and me. Notice God again is, he's the one making the covenant. It's not an equality thing. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked to him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I think this is first of all, there's a ton here, and one of the 
the actual audio commentaries as to this is a whole sermon just in these verses I'm going to go through really fast some of the pieces that kind of stuck out at least to me but you may have other things you want to get into look at the words really carefully first of all God says I will make multiple times in this passage from verse 2 through verse 6 I will make I will make I will do this God's doing pretty much everything in this covenant and he's going to only ask one thing of Abram uh, or now Abraham, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, exceedingly, you see that a few times in there. Uh, verse 2, verse 6, later in verse 20. Exceedingly is actually, in the Hebrew, it's actually, we have it translated as one word, but it's actually the same word repeated. <laughs> so this is better translated, I am greatly, greatly, or I am exceedingly, exceedingly. And it's a lot like when we say, oh, that's really, really cool, or that's super, super. Um, so the better translation of this, in each of the cases where you see exceedingly, it should be twice. So I will make you exceedingly, exceedingly fruitful. In Exodus 1.7, uh, we see the same thing getting used. So it's actually kind of that particular word, this is how you use it. And it was. it's also, again, a fulfillment of this prophecy when you see in Exodus 1.7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and were waxed exceedingly exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them so when we see this later in the bible they use that same kind of like i think it's like a cute affectionate turn of phrase a very familiar kind of loving way to talk um abram of course falls on his face it's been 13 years since he's heard from god and his first reaction as a more mature believer is he falls before god there's a promise of offspring and a change in his name the last time Abram questioned, remember, we saw him like come back to God with questions. This time he doesn't come back with questions. He just comes back with reverence. Uh, last time we saw him, he wanted proof of these things. He wanted evidence. And this time he's just glad to hear from God again, which fits with that narrative of I'm sufficient for you. You should be, you should be filled. You should have all you need. Uh, and Abram, of course, does. And he, and he kind of falls on his face. We see David fall on his face. We see Moses fall on his face. Throughout the Bible, people that actually hear from God, that tends to be a common reaction when you hear from God is to fall on your fall on your knees, fall on your face, and just understand your position in relation to the mighty one of the universe. And it's a wonderful thought. Um, note that God is in this also this first part, he's answering both questions that Abram had fifteen years ago without Abram even asking the questions. So last time Abram had to ask questions, and this time he, he answers them for him. Um, note the instances where God says, I will make. Uh, those are actually slightly different. In verse 2 it says, I will make my covenant between you and me, and will multiply you exceedingly. And then in verse 5, I've made you a father of many nations. So the first one says, I will make my covenant between you, and which is something that hadn't happened yet. And then the I have made in, in verse 5 is actually in the past tense. In other words, God has already done it. There's certain pieces to the history of the world where God's already made them happen, and I thought that was cool. Verse 6 again, it says, I will make you exceedingly, exceedingly fruitful, fruitful, and I will make nations of you and kings to come. He moves back to the future tense for those. Um, so that idea that Abram already is a father of nations is one of those things that uh, um, 
the Bible is intentionally switching tenses there, and I think it's been translated really well. Um, and then he changes his name. But your name shall be Abraham. And when God changes our name, it changes our destiny. It changes what we are. So his name went from being exalted father to now his name is father of a multitude, which is again an ironic name for Abram because he was called exalted father for decades before Ishmael was born, which had to be kind of hard to go and talk to say when he had to talk to people to just say, yeah, what's your name? And he'd say, oh, I'm exalted father. Oh, cool. You must love, really love your kids. No, I don't have any kids. It's the name that God gave me. It's kind of weird. But now that he has one kid, God changes his name to be the father of a multitude. So, wow, how many kids do you have? Oh, well, one. So he's still in this situation where his name is the promise that God gives him, but it's not necessarily connected with the reality of today. And I think we see that a lot throughout the Bible, that God gives people names that today doesn't really fit. But in history, when we look back at their lives, the names totally fit. Um, Abram, of course, hears this first passage and he just stays quiet. So when he listens to God, he actually um, hears God first. Dave Gusick kind of goes through a bunch of name changes that fit with this too. Uh, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel in Genesis 32, 28. You can kind of look these up if you want and see if you see comparisons to them, but I thought I'd just give you the references. Um, Jesus changes Simon Peter's name or Simon's name to Simon Peter or Peter in Mark 3.16. And of course, Peter means rock. Uh, So he takes this flippant, flighty, here and there person, waffling person and calls him a rock, which wasn't the case when he got the name, but it was the case in history. And then God promises, and this is kind of the part for us, in Revelations 2.17, Revelation 2.17, there's actually a promise that everyone that calls on the name of God will get a new name. So if you're in this room and you think you're following the Lord and you're on your way to heaven and whatnot, um, God actually promises you a new name too, and we just don't know what it is yet. But in the same way that Abraham is Abraham forever, and even in the past tense and the future tense, that new name that we have is almost already the one that God thinks of us with, because he sees our future and he sees our history. Verses 5 and 6, the I, I have made, I will make, I will make. Uh, they switch gears on those two. I already talked about past tense, future tense. But the I have made and I will make from verses 5 and 6 are to give or to put or to, to deliver something. We saw this in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, and Genesis 9, where God used where God would make, and the word the Hebrew word is Nathan. Uh in 1, 3, 4, and 9, he made lights, he made food, he made rainbows, and he made covenants. They're all part of what God sets in place or puts in place. But that one in the middle is actually not the word Nathan, it's the word para, which means to fruitify or to make things fruitful or to abound. Um, so he, he will he will make or he will fruitify things. I, I made up the word fruitify. That's not, we don't really have a word for this, but it's to fruit, but it's more like a verb than a, than a uh, noun in this case. God references population of the earth, and in Genesis 1 and 8, he uses the word para when he talks about what he's going to make to. Um, All of these then put together include both the past, present, and future, and they have to do with God, what God has already set in place, what God will set in pace, 
and what he will make happen and how he will give fruit. So it seems really redundant in English, I will make, I will do this, but they're all given slightly different contexts and slightly in very different words. Uh, there's actually a building there of God making a very strong covenant with Abram. Verse seven, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to be God to you and your descendants after you. So this, highlight the word everlasting here. This covenant's not over with. And if, if it is everlasting, then this covenant or God's blessing on the, on the Jewish people is still there. Not only the Jewish people, but anyone who Paul says has been grafted in to that family through Jesus Christ. So this covenant actually goes all the way through Jesus and anyone who follows Jesus. Verse 8. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan and everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Remember, Abram's still living in tents. He says he's going to inherit this land, but he's still a stranger in a strange land. Um, it reminded me when Jesus said that even the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, that sometimes having a home or a place actually shackles you down in a way that you're not, you don't have to trust God. Abram here is doing a work. The promise of inheritance does not mean that, does not mean that Abram doesn't have a lifetime to share his love with God and others. In other words, Abram's job here isn't to get the inheritance. His job is to walk faithfully with the Lord. God loves the stranger. Um, in Leviticus, we see a, a number of laws um, regarding how to treat strangers. In fact, when you look at the law as a, an entire book, there's 124 mentions of strangers, how we should treat strangers, how we should give hospitality to them, how we shouldn't rip them off when we do business with them, and how we should make peace with strangers. In fact, God has a high regard for strangers, and here he's calling his own child Abraham a stranger. Moses also was, in Deuteronomy 10.19, uh, was a was called a, a stranger in Midian. Um, and God uses the logic of how Moses should love the strangers in Deuteronomy 10:19, for he was a stranger in the land of Egypt, and the Jewish people lived in Egypt for 400 years as strangers there. David was called a stranger when he walked in Philistine. Uh, remember the eight years when he's running from Saul and he goes and lives in another country. And Jesus, of course, was a stranger in Jerusalem. Uh, and even when he was there, they kept noting how he was from Galilee and Nazareth, and he wasn't a true Jerusalemite. And it reminds me sometimes that when you love the Lord, when you want to serve the Lord, when you do crazy things like read the Bible and pray and, and have fellowship and talk about your love of Jesus Christ, it makes you stand out. You're kind of a stranger, which seems weird. We can talk about almost anything, but you want to talk about Jesus Christ, and there's a power that enters that conversation for good or for bad. Yet when people feel down and when they need things, they tend to go to Christians to talk about Jesus Christ because uh, it's where our comfort is. All right, I'm going to do a bigger chunk starting with verse 9. And God said to Abraham, uh, from here forth it is Abraham, so I don't have to worry about what to say, but I just got used to Abram. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you. Again, God's saying, this is my covenant. It's not the two-way street. This is the covenant I'm making with you and the descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised 
in the flesh of your foreskins, in case you wondered where that was, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Can you see why I'm doing a large chunk now? Yeah, okay. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, and every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So there's two kinds of covenants here. There's the one in the flesh and the one that's spiritual or goes forever. Verse 14, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people for he is broken by covenant. Literally translated, either his foreskin is cut or he'll be cut off. So you either get cut or you get cut out. Circumcision, of course, I won't get into too much. Frankly, I'm not comfortable talking about it that much. But a few interesting pieces, it's a particular piece of skin that only humans have. Um, It is not something that makes any sense in evolutionary terms because it has no apparent use immediately. In fact, the benefit is to not have it. So being a total geek, I wanted to get into actual modern medicine and figure out what that was. Of most surgeries, of all like medical procedures, almost always the doctors, for insurance reasons, want to say, here's the downside or the negative effects of this particular surgery. However, when you go to the Mayo Clinic, as of this year, all they list are the benefits of easier hygiene for males, a decreased risk of urinary tract infections, actual decreased risk of sexually transmitted diseases, and a decreased risk of cancer. In fact, one of my friends went into the doctor and talked about, you know, do I have to worry about cancer? And the doctor just laughed and said, you're circumcised, right? And he said, yeah, this is a 60 plus year old man. He says, no, you really don't have to worry. The only way you get that kind of cancer is if you haven't been circumcised. So if you think of God's desire to multiply the Jewish people, one of the best things that God could have done to help avoid venereal diseases, diseases in general, and certain types of cancer is this particular odd, weird little procedure. Another piece, if it's spiritual too, is this idea that it's extremely personal, right? So for Abram to go to his servants and his 13-year-old son Ishmael and say, I've just talked to God, we're going to do this thing, this is totally personal. And you either have to say, I'm Abraham, I'm your, I work for you, I'm your servant, we're good, or you're getting out of his camp, right? And that's what happened with Lot. Lot got, they had to part ways because Lot was just facing the world too much. So this is another way that God can actually thin out the herd a little bit like he does with Gideon. But I have more I want to read because this is kind of crazy. So Ayala Abramov, a medical doctor, quote, the system of blood clotting or coagulation depends on certain types of proteins called platelets, which are produced by the liver. These materials, known by the Roman numerals 1 through 13, work in sequence together with various enzymes until a stable clot called a fibrin can be formed. The first days after a baby is born, the liver is not developed enough to survive a surgical operation. In other words, you cut a baby, they'll probably die because they can't clot their own blood. Make sense? Okay, catch this. This could cause massive bleeding and usually death for the newborn, 
whose body simply does not have the ability to stop the blood flow on its own. Physiologically, this lasts until the eighth day. The liver slowly develops until the eighth day itself, it is mature enough to fulfill its role to create the clots necessary to stop bleeding. You'd think this would be like, well, what if they were, what if she just was late? Then shouldn't that happen? But actually the development of liver starts when they hit fresh air. So it's something that triggers in the body after birth and only when birth happens. So exactly eight days after you're born, this changes things. Another study by none of these diseases by Dr. S.I. McMillan says, and this is in the year 2000, so we're not talking about ancient Jewish history here, notes enthusiastically that in the first days of life, the newborn faces a serious death of blood clotting substances, where after the eighth day, the level of clotting material, protothomorphobian or whatever, in the blood reaches its lifetime average of 100%. However, just before the eighth day and on the eighth day, the amount of blood clotting material increases rapidly until on the eighth day itself, it's actually at 110% of the norm. So there's one day of our life when we have 110% clotting material in our blood system, and it happens to be on the eighth day. And this is just one of those cases where it's not that the the Bible copies science, it's that the science really proves that there was something to this. Circumcision wasn't new, there's lots of ancient societies that, that did it, but that eighth day piece is uniquely new to the Jewish people um, and would have been something that they put there. Leviticus 12, two through three, makes this a permanent part of the Jewish people's young eight day life. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Let's move on. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, and for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I love this. Sarai, remember, was princess or uh, a blessed princess. Sarah is a little bit different. It means a mother of many or a mother of nations. He changed her name to match his name. He's the father of many nations, and she would be a mother or a noble woman to many families. And I think that's really cool that especially in marriage, I think God sometimes changes people together as you grow older or else Steph would have gotten sick of my immaturity a long time ago. But this is kind of a beautiful thing. Verse 16, and I will bless her and I will give you a son by her and then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. A king, kings of peoples shall be from her. And of course that's rephrasing Sarah and he's saying, her name shall be Sarah, and she shall be Sarah. Kings of peoples shall be from her. I wanted to stop and say, I think there's a moment in every young man's life when you date a young lady, or young not every young man, but the ones that get married. And you can ask Zach in a few years if this happens to him. But I think when you're first courting a young lady, you're courting a princess. You're courting someone who you think is beautiful, She's enchanting. The way she does things is interesting. It's something you're, you're curious about. You don't know how to talk to her. Your tongue ties when you get there. Eventually you work up the courage. You start dating and you get married and you're actually married to this beautiful princess. And I think you shouldn't marry someone unless you're really excited to spend the rest of your life with them, right? It's not a flippant thing you do in Las Vegas on the weekend. It's a lifetime commitment. 
So you should commit to someone who's beautiful, but I think there's something that happens and I can't tell you when. Maybe it's around year 13, because that's, you know, it's been 13 years with Ishmael. Maybe it's around year 25. I don't know what it is. But you wake up one morning and you realize you're married to a noble woman. And that princess, the name changes from princess to noble woman of many. And you realize she's still beautiful. And I think you're beautiful. <laughs> she still catches your eye. You still, But after so long, you kind of know her and you realize there's so much more to her than that. She's more than just pretty. She's amazing. There's a depth to her character and her soul that makes her noble, right? And she's not just a princess, she's the queen. And I think that's something that happens from the eyes of Abraham and God as they talk about Sarah behind her back. There's a transition here where not only does her name change, but Abraham Abraham starts to treat her like his queen. And she's she's not the one nagging about sleeping with her slave. She becomes the one that's a partner with him in these things. And they start to grow together and they, they're living life together. Verse 17, then Abram fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, shall, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And Sarah, a noblewoman, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might, li- might live before you. So this is... Abraham has changed. It used to be he was praying for himself. He wanted his own things. But his first thought after, oh my goodness, Sarah's going to bear a child herself. His first thought is, God, what are you going to do with Ishmael? This is his 13-year-old son. He loves him. You know, he's taught him how to fish and how to take care of sheep. And, you know, he's trained him in in the family business. And he's thinking this is going to be his person. And, you know, He's basically his first thought is don't, you know, might I want Ishmael to survive here. You're gonna take care of him too. Abram has a heart for other people. The laughter that Abram does, he is not chastised for. Later on, Sarah's gonna laugh and she is, you know, chastised for it, which means this is a different kind of laugh. It's not a laugh where he doubts God. It's more of a laugh of God, aren't you amazing? You're gonna do that? You're gonna shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? That's what you're going to do? This is a, this is stunning, right? And it's a healing thing probably of a lifetime of hurt of having the name father, right? Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. In Hebrew, that literally means laughter. Not because Sarah laughed later on, but because Abram laughed in joy. There's a joyful laughter, and that's still a really popular name. God repeats his promise, which I think is kind of funny because he's like, let me start over, Abraham. Let me tell you how this is going to be. I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. It's interesting that he hears Abraham's prayer for Ishmael. He blesses Ishmael. Ishmael is going to have 12 princes. Largely speaking, uh, the Arab people claim that's their inheritance, and so do the Jewish people. So everyone living in the Middle East agrees those 12 princes are the Arab nations. 
and that that's where they came from and that's where they claim their inheritance um, and that they are blessed and they have multiplied and they have filled that land and taken it over um, except for Palestine uh, which is where Isaac's descendants have taken over Ishmael God remember it means God will hear I think it's interesting that when Abraham appeals for his life God will hear is the name Ishmael and what that means and I love these names and how they work in here because when he says, oh, that God might hear can live before you. So he's praying for God to hear him about a kid named God will hear and listen. Um, and God does, and he does that. So we see this intercession from Abraham, and it's not going to be the last time we're going to see it again in the next chapter. I think it's interesting in what we see here as we watch Abraham grow in his faith and most mature believers do this, is that we stop asking for things and we start asking for what God wants and trying to understand what God wants. And Abraham is asking and, and pleading for other people as a third element to that. And that prayer keeps happening where mature believers simply count the blessings God has given because God is sufficient. God is the one that fills our needs. There's power behind God. El Shaddai is who they serve, not Jehovah. The name slightly changes in the same way that Sarah's name changed and Abraham's name changed. We also see that God used a different, slightly different name when he talks to Abraham here. And part of that is we become different things to each other as we grow old with each other. We move from acquaintances to friends. We move from friends to brothers and sisters. We move from brothers and sisters in the faith to spending eternity together in heaven. And our relationships change over time. Verse 23. So Abraham took, a, took Ishmael his son and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, and every male among the men of Abraham's house, and did the unthinkable. He circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. You know, you might have said, hey, Abraham, hey, Dad, or hey, Abraham, could we give this a couple days? Could we think about it? And in fact, Abraham's life, had been, his mistakes were a history of waiting too long on things or not waiting on God long enough. But when God speaks, Abraham, this time around, he listens the same day he acts. Next chapter, we're going to see Lot, and he doesn't, he waits on things, he dallies. Abraham's so blessed by these moments that with, with God that he doesn't delay this time like he has before. He has immediate obedience and trust. Verse 24, Abram was 99 years old, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. It's easy to follow someone's leadership if they're willing to do the same thing they're asking you to do. It would have been really hard to do this particular intimate, personal, has everything to do with your inheritance, right? It would have been really hard to do that if Abraham didn't lead the way on it and take the lead and do something himself. So he's not asking people to do anything he's not willing to do. Abraham's obedience is threefold here then. It's total. It's every one of the men in his house. His obedience is immediate. It happens the very same day. And his obedience is trusting in that all of his defenders... Remember, he might be a little worried about his neighbors or those people from Sodom getting revenge. Basically takes his guardian force, his soldiers, the men of his household, and he 
pretty much puts them on the sick bed for an, about a week. You're, you're pretty much not able to do much of anything after that kind of procedure. So this isn't just for health. It isn't to his benefit in any way, shape, or form. Abram does this very physical act with a significantly spiritual impact, and the Bible treats it as spiritual for the rest of the Word of God. So we see this as a first in the Bible, um, but it's not going to be the end. There's clear spiritual implications here. And to get those, I want to jump to two different verses. One is Jeremiah 4.4. In Jeremiah 4.4, I'll wait, I have a flipper. They talk about circumcision, but they do it not in a physical sense. It's specifically referring to circumcision in a spiritual sense. So it's something that gets done that should have a spiritual mirror to it when we do it. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. In other words, there's something in our heart that should be circumcised too. There's something that we are born with that should be cut away and we should not have it be part of our lives if we want to serve the Lord. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 is really similar. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and that thou mayest live. Which is really close to how Jesus responded when they said, what are the greatest of the commandments? And he says, love thy neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And Jesus was basically saying the most important thing you can do, and this is before the law with Abraham, because Moses gives us the law, the most important thing you can do is circumcise yourself before the Lord. Not necessarily physically, but but when it comes to your heart, and that's how it's treated. There are things that we do in secret that nobody knows about, and we do them in the flesh, but God sees it. So even though these guys are going to get dressed after this procedure, and nobody really needs to see that business ever again, God still sees that it's been done, and that it happens. We cut away these parts of our heart that long after the ungodly things and our response to it should be like Abraham's. When we hear the calling of Christ in our life, we should be totally committed to Christ. We should be immediately committed to Christ, and we should trust that his plan is going to hold true. And it's just kind of a cool thought. We're going to get a contrast to this as time passes, a little bit of time passes here, and God's going to turn from Abraham and his covenant with Abraham's family and he's going to look over to Lot and what's going on with Lot. So it's kind of a meanwhile we see this. So in verse 1, it actually starts with then in chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Remember, Mamre is kind of in the mid-south, so it's around an area where Jerusalem will be built. So Abram's hanging around down in those hills. As he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day, in super hot climates, this is common. You don't work from noon to three. It's just too dang hot. So what happens is you take a siesta, is what they call it in Mexico. You take a break during those hours. You nap because your body can handle that heat. It's actually kind of good for you. So this is not Abraham being lazy. This is him not working in the heat of the day, which would have been common. Verse two. So he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing by him. 
And when he saw them, he ran to the front, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not, do not pass by your servant. So it must've been there kind of walking past the tent and he ran out in front of them and put himself right in front of them. He also must've recognized the Lord. Um, so you wonder if Abraham was praying in his tent, what he was doing there. Um, in verse 10 and verse 22, uh, the Lord is going to respond as I. Um, so Abraham recognizes one of the three of them as, as being his king or his Lord, and he calls him that much. So he must have known what God looked like or something about this person made him see that. It says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that no one has ever seen God in the person of the Father. And it's a distinct thing and because what they're talking about is that people have seen God in the person of Jesus because the Holy Spirit's not visible. So this is what is called, again, a Christophany. There's a lot of these in Genesis where apparently this is Jesus strolling past Abraham's tent. This doesn't make sense to a Jewish person. To a Christian person, we don't struggle with this at all, right? Um, this is simply an incarnation uh, of Jesus prior to his incarnation in Bethlehem. Um, Abram seems to be a bit more than hospitable here. Hospitality is massive in this culture, in, in all of these nomadic cultures. Hospitality is a really big deal. Um, but there's some things here, the indicators that this is way more than just hospitality. First of all, he runs to meet them. Second, he bows, shakak, to bow and worship is the first use that we see this. Um, but it's not the last. It's pretty standard to bow before God, but it's the first time we see this kind of bowing. He's not falling on his face. He's, he's doing a different word there. Um, and then he says, my Lord, and that is translated Adonai, which we know just because we use that word a lot today, but he actually calls, them, calls him his Lord. Um, and he calls him a Lord despite the fact that Abraham is clearly the head of that household and that community, that mobile village that he runs. Um, and we see that Hebrews 13 2 says don't be forgetful to entertain the strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware you wonder if this might be part of where they're referencing that is that Abram's dramatic hospitality here he's actually entertaining angels uh, they do go in and they eat uh, verse 4 please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you might refresh your hearts, and after that you may pass by insomuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as what you have said. Yeah, we'll sit and we'll eat with you. So Abram hurried into the tent to Sarah, and he said, Quickly, make three measures of fine meal and knead it into cakes. And Sarah turned around and said, What, am I your cook? No, she didn't say that. Um, but I thought it was kind of funny. I actually think it's cool that Abraham's meeting with God and his first reaction is to go talk to his wife. We see an intimacy here that is so much stronger than what it was, where he kind of tolerated her harassment over Hagar, but now it's going in and talking to her. Again, he's saying quickly, there's an urgency here, and he's going to make bread and cakes, and it's going to be good stuff. And Abraham doesn't leave her to cook all by herself. He just does the more bloody option. Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, <laughs> here young man, and he hastened to prepare it. Sabram's running around making arrangements for a feast, not just a little bit of water and washing of feet. 
he's actually preparing a feast. So he took the butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as he ate. Abraham's generosity is amazing here. His willingness to entertain and host is really huge. You all say thank you for supper here, but it's the least we can do is to feed people and open up our house and have people there. And really, we're being super selfish. We're just trying to copy Abraham and the people of God to the best of our ability to feed people who, not that you need food or anything like that, but to just be hospitable and say, if you're coming over, of course we're going to make food for you. Of course we're going to do that. It also goes to the idea of you're grabbing calf and fine meal and cakes and he's giving the best of what he has. Um, Part of that too is God's given him everything, right? He was about to get killed in Egypt a few years ago. So Abram looks around at his wealth and what he has and he thinks, this is all God's. If it was up to me, I would still be living in a tent and running from Egyptians. That said, with Sarah the young man that Abraham works with and with Abraham himself getting the butter and the milk and whatnot, you've got a finely tuned hospitality machine here. And I think a good household, if you've got multiple people in your household, there should be roles and things that people do. So when people do come over, you can react quick. And unlike the story of Mary and Martha, where one of them sits with their guests, but the other one's in the kitchen being really busy, we don't wanna be the busy one. We wanna have it to where hospitality is easy so that when people do come, we can spend time with the people. So we see that, and he runs back, uh, and he stands by them under the tree as they ate, which means Abraham, you'd think he could, he's the Lord of all he knows. He'd be like the Sodom king, asking, you know, picking his position of pride and authority and saying, I will take this, and you shall be able to keep this. Remember the king of Sodom when he came back? Abraham doesn't do that. Guests come to his house, And he stands by them while they ate, which is what waiters do. He makes himself a servant instead of making himself a lord sitting at the table with other people. I think that's a wonderful image of being a servant leader. And we're going to see that from God's people all over the place, that at some point you stop thinking about yourself and you start serving other people. Verse 9, and then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So again, here in verse 12, there's only one person talking, not all three of them. In verse 9, then they said to him, so they're all asking where his wife is. But at some point in verse 10, it turns into, I will certainly return to you. And from from here forward in the conversation, Abram's just talking to his Lord, just a one-on-one conversation. And the promise gets made again. That's odd. Your wife shall have a son. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So this is within three months, this is going to happen. And we hear God's promises over and over and over again. I think it's important for Abraham that he hears God's promise over and over again. Um, And that's the importance of studying the word. When we read the word, we hear God's promises over and over and over again because we're humans and we forget them. So Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind them. She's eavesdropping. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. They were well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Verse 12. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, I have grown old. And shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? I'm an old person. I don't make kids. And neither does my husband. We're not in that business anymore. This is a perfectly reasonable reaction. Um, 
but it's still denying God's promise. God's promises often ask us to believe things which are not rational from a worldly perspective. Sarah, at this point in her life, has given up hope of ever having a child, which is kind of sad. Um, she's not just old, but she's been barren her whole life. So when somebody comes to your door and they're eating a meal in your place and they're saying stuff that's hurtful like that, that had to just sting. Um, and her reaction is to laugh. She lacks a little tact here, but she puts it extremely bluntly um, because she does say, "Have I after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Um, I think they wanted the, to have a kid most of their lives. And here they are closing in on 100, um, and they're a bit cynical about this. They kind of maybe doubt God's word a little bit. It's been too long. Um, it also points out that what's about to happen in three months is actually a miracle. It's a miracle of physical regeneration, not only with Sarah and her womb, but apparently with Abraham too, um, and that God can do that if he wants to. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, here it actually uses the phrase the Lord, why did Sarah laugh saying, surely I shall bear a child since I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? So when Abraham laughs, it's a laughter of, I can't believe you're just this amazing God. When Sarah laughs, it's the laughter of kind of doubt. And the Lord calls her out on it. Um, this question holds true for our prayers today. Is there anything that's too hard for God? And when we pray, and I just was really convicted by this, man, when I pray for things, do I actually believe they can happen? Uh, when I pray for healing, do I actually believe they can happen? Uh, when you pray for someone's heart to change, who's bitter and hard, do we believe that God can change that heart and do that work? We sometimes don't pray because we don't want to be disappointed. And I think the hardest thing for me is when people in the church are like sick and you're praying for health. What if they don't get healthy? Does that make my God look bad? Like if he doesn't answer our prayer? Um, I think it's interesting that we see that kind of thing and we see that laughter of well, God's not going to do this or that. I, re I remember a couple occasions where I'd say things like, wow, well, God is good. People would just look at me like I'm nuts. Like, God didn't do that. You did that. Or I did that. And you just think, yeah, but there's so many things that God gifts us with that we don't have control over. Um, but just that idea of understanding that, that God can do anything. I think that's a nice t-shirt, by the way. Is there anything too hard for God? So I think that should go on our p potential t-shirt list. Um, it's a wonderful question, and it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the Lord is saying, no, this isn't too hard for God. We might not always agree with what God's doing, but when we pray for things in his will, we, he can do anything. In fact, Jesus says, if you believe that, this, uh, that that mountain can move, if it's in line with God's will, that mountain will move. It's not something that's tough. God made the whole planet in Genesis 1, which gives us context for what he can do or cannot do, with the planet that he made. The word hard is only used five times this way in the Bible. The other 30 plus times that it gets used in the Bible, it actually is translated as wonderful or marvelous. Is there anything too marvelous for God? Is there anything too wonderful for God? Um, so it's the same word. It, it really only gets translated hard here and in a couple other places. Um, it's also the same word that gets used in Isaiah 9, 6 which if you remember that one, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, um, which is essentially 
you know, his name shall be called hard is not the right translation of that. That word is wonderful or marvelous is a much better translation. Um, so this idea of is anything too marvelous for God um, is the same phrase that gets used when Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And I think this is hilarious. This is this totally human interaction that God's entertaining with Sarah. Um, and it's an argument. She's bickering with Jesus about this sort of thing. And you just think, oh my goodness. Um, so Sarah thinks that just because she laughed within herself, that God doesn't hear it. So then she goes and lies about it. So when we think that God doesn't know what's going on in our heart or in our head, he knows what's painted on the inside of our head. He knows what we're thinking of. He knows what we're doing. And when he calls us out on it or another believer calls us out on it, we're super tempted because we think it's private. We're super tempted to say, I didn't think that or I didn't do that or I didn't say that. Um, and it's not the case. God does know our hearts. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all of his innermost parts. God not only sees what's in our heart, he sees it plain as day. Um, that's where he resides in, in the spirit and in our spirits. Verse 16. Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Another common culture uh, kind of tradition is you, you walk a short ways with people that have visited your home. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring Abraham at what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. Um, what's that? Thank you. What we're going to read, what we're about to read, um, Abraham's going to see as tragic that this is a really tough thought, that we're going to destroy not only Sodom, but Gomorrah and all the cities of the Siddim Plain, except for one small little village called Zoar, is going to get saved. Some of the truths of the Bible are being recorded there, um, and I think that this particular passage is an interesting insight to that. They're going to show and tell Abraham what they're about to do, um, and in verse 19, notice that they, they give a reason for it, in order that he may command his children and his household after him. Part of what Abraham needs to do to guide his family is not only point them to the Lord, but point them away from sin. That the Lord leads to blessing and sin leads to destruction. And there's two sides to that coin. And you can't really have one without the other, um, regardless of how much you want to dress up and make Christianity a comfortable religion. It's not comfortable because the flip side of it is this idea that God will also bring judgment to those who don't follow him. So God holds people accountable, and that's part of where he's considering, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? And he thinks, the Lord thinks, well, yeah, because he's got to lead his family. There has to be a point where a parent says, that leads to destruction and this leads to blessing, and that's how you guide children to raise up in the Lord. Um, given that we're mostly college students without children, I won't go into that too much more. If we come back to Genesis when you're in your 30s, we can talk about parenting a lot more. 
Nehemiah 9.19, reinforcing this. um, Yet thou and thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day, referring to Moses, and lead them in the way. Neither the pillar of fire by night should show them the light and the way wherein they should go. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, they mean translated. Sodom means scorched or burnt, which is really appropriate given what's about to happen. Gomorrah means submersion or to be submerged, which is really appropriate based on what's about to happen and what archaeologists have said. Sin is weighty uh, when it says that what they've done is very grave at the end of that passage. Uh, Grave means weighty or burdensome. In other words, when God sees whole cities that reject him, and defy him and do stuff that's just evil to one another, that actually weighs on the Lord at some level. He doesn't want to see that happen, but he's going to, through the prayer we're about to see, Abram's going to convince him that he's going to put up with a lot of that weight on his shoulders on behalf of the world. And it's what Jesus is going to do too. He's going to take that weight or that sin and put it upon himself. So, The other piece was Sodom, and this is my last piece. I'm like, he's going to destroy a city. How do we deal with that? He's already destroyed the world with the flood. So this is not a full world global destruction. This is a localized destruction. (laughs) Another thought is that Sodom has been delivered by Abraham when he saved him the battle a few chapters ago. They've got this city in the hills that Melchizedek is the priest of that honors the Lord God or Jehovah. So they know of Jehovah. And Lot lived there. So even though Lot becomes part of Sodom and and then is complicit in their sins, they've heard of Jehovah. They know who Jehovah is. They've been preached to. And they've had this opportunity. um, And then they're going to get one last chance where God himself or the two angels are going to go down to Sodom, not because God needs to see what's going on. He sees all things. But they have one more chance to treat these angels well to be hospitable, to be good people. And they're going to blow that chance too. I think it's interesting that when we've heard of the kingdom, when we've heard the gospel, God's going to do everything he can to get people to come back to holiness. And he does the same with Sodom. We're going to see consistently through the Old Testament, God never kills people without giving them a chance. And one last chance seems to be something that that mercy abounds forever. And non-Christians love to read the Bible and just point out how God destroys people or God wrecks this city or wipes these people out. How can a good God do these horrible things? They're not horrible things. They're judgment things. They're things where God has said, I've had enough. You don't want to live and be holy. You don't have to live and you don't have to be holy. Um, C.S. Lewis says, basically, when we go to hell, we're getting exactly what we want. God's actually granting the wishes for both those who go to heaven and for those to go to hell. You don't want to be in God's presence. You don't have to be. God doesn't want you in his presence either at that point. Verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And then we see one of the best examples of prayer in the Bible. There's a few huge prayers in the Bible where we see kind of how to pray and what it looks like. This is one of them. Verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and he said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
it isn't clear that the Lord was going to destroy anything from above. So Abram just kind of knows what's going on with God right now. But we don't see any evidence in the text that he said he was going to destroy anything. So Abraham draws near to God as one of the first examples. One of the first things he does in his prayer is he draws near to God. In other words, instead of leading with what we want from God, we lead just by coming close to God, coming into his presence, listening. Verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? One of the things Abraham does here is he basically cares for the city. He's loving other people. He's acknowledging that God is the judge. Um, and he's coming to him in this loving place. And he's understanding or saying, God, this is who you are. You're someone who does right. And I think we're going to see that in all the other big prayers in the Bible is this idea of starting off with acknowledging who God is and what his character is as the starting of our prayer. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sakes. God actually spares entire cities for small groups of people to live in it. Then Abram answered and he said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Second thing Abraham does is he not only says who God is, but he turns to himself and he puts him in his own place. I am dust and ashes. So there's that idea of ascribing to God the worth that God should have and ascribing to us the worth that we have in the face of the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous people. For my math depraved people, that's 45. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five people? Part of an effective prayer is to reflect on and speak the truth of our position and to state it before the God of the universe. And he's wondering, if you would spare it for 50, would you spare it for 45? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And then he said, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose sure 30 should be found there. Abraham doesn't question God here. He doesn't question that God's going to destroy the city. And Abraham never makes demands of God. He just asks that God not be frustrated with all his requests. And I think there's something really humble about that, that tone, that posture before God. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. Once you're there, why not ask for everything that a God ali- that aligns with God's heart? If you're in front of God, why not ask for all of it? And Abram starts out asking for just this little bit to see where God's heart was at. But now that he sees that God will work with them, he just keeps asking to save souls. Will you, will you spare the city for this? Will you spare it for this? Of course, God knows that there are not 20 righteous people in this city. So he's humoring Abraham a little bit. Abraham a little bit. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. In fact, arguably, there's only one person that's maybe righteous in the city, and that's arguable, as we'll see in a few verses. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham could have gone down to one with this, and I think God would have still said, 
if I find one righteous person, I won't destroy it. He's going to save Lot and his wife and his two daughters, but we're going to see that all four of them are clearly not righteous people. So God spares Lot and part of his family because he loves Abraham. And, and Abraham maybe would have a chance to bring Lot around. Um, there were 10 people in Lot's family. If you count his sons, his daughters, his wife, his son's wives, and whatnot, it actually adds up to 10 people. So Abraham's not directly asking for Lot's family to be saved, but he doesn't go any less than 10 because that would mean Abraham would be chopping off his own family members. So the Lord already knows how many there are. He's testing Abraham's mercy, his leadership, his prayer. There's a part of prayer where it's not really for us to get things from God or for God for us to align God with us. It's more about we aligning ourselves with God. And I think that's what's going on. God is actually teaching Abraham, and he's teaching Abraham that he will listen to his prayers. So this is the first intercessory prayer in the Bible, intercessory being where someone prays for somebody else and God listens. This is kind of amazing that God, the God of the universe, God Almighty, God sufficient, um, Lord of Lord and princes of princes would actually hear a human being. And I think it's amazing that we can speak to God and talk to God and he hears us. Abram's completely respectful, saying, I'm dust. He's completely in conformity to God's will, saying, you are, so will you do this? And he's anxious, and he isn't anxious to bring judgment in this sense. Note the tiny number of people that God's willing to save this whole city for, um, even though there aren't really those people there. And then we see in Abraham the heart of a true leader who prays to save and redeem everybody that he can save and redeem there's no one that should be gone. In fact, the Lord says he doesn't want anyone to be lost. No, not one. So next, in the next chapter, we're going to see Lot. Am I okay to do one more chapter? No? It's 10-2. All right, when we come back for chapter 19, I would do like three hours if I could. When we come back to chapter 19, we're going to see the flip side of this, where Abraham's praying for other people. We're going to see Lot and the story of Lot, and we're going to see Sodom and Gomorrah get burnt with fire and brimstone uh, as we have the second major intervention by God to just destroy or, or to end a group of people. Um, so we'll get into some tough topics with chapter 19 too. And we'll go through them. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just love you. Lord, help us to acknowledge who you are. You made the stars in the sky, Lord. You made them countless. Uh, you made the earth and the animals on it. You made the seas and the heavens. Uh, Lord, you formed them in your hand and you made them according to your will. Lord, you've made a covenant with Abraham because you've promised a Messiah. You promised Adam and Eve that there would be one that would come from, Eve's, from, from Eve that would stop this curse, the curse of sin, Lord. Um, you don't will for anyone to perish, Lord, but we as humans follow our own hearts. We do as we see fit in our own eyes. Uh, we often stray from your word and stray from what your word says, Lord, and we do it all the time. Uh, Lord, it is so hard to walk on this earth and, and serve you wholeheartedly. But Lord, you've given us all the tools we need to do it. You've given us your word, your Holy Spirit. You've given us the fellowship of saints, and you've given us our family and our friends, Lord, that can help drive us towards good and righteous living. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we know that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. We know it's a gift that you gave out of the generosity 
and the goodness, Lord, of your, your heart. Lord, we know that we're not worthy of that gift. Uh, we don't, we've done nothing to earn it, Lord. In the same way that Abraham, he did, he did everything but the right thing, Lord. And, and his faithful service to you came after some huge mistakes in his life. But Lord, he faithfully served you. He got up each day, loved you, served you, trained people in on, on, on who you were and what you were, Lord, and, and shared the, the stories of, of Adam and Eve and creation and your intention for and your plan for this universe. So Lord, we honor you in that. Lord, we intercede for the people that we know in our lives, our friends, our family members, Lord, that struggle with serving you. Uh, Lord, we know what a joy it is to serve you. We know that it fills our heart with enthusiasm and happiness, laughter. Um, and Lord, we know that you have blessed us with those things. Um, and we open an invitation to those around us, Lord. And we just pray that you will soften their hearts and uh, bring them into that joy of the kingdom too, that they can find that love and that, that blessing that you give, Lord. And we just think that that's so amazing. We know you have a heart for those people too. So help us to be your servants, your hands, your feet. As we go into this week, Lord, I pray for your blessing and your anointing on those things. Um, as your people pray, Lord, we know that we we can change the world we live in. So, Lord, I just pray for that. I pray for hearts to turn to you, to be saved, Lord, from the, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. You say that in the last days, uh, the people will be like those in Sodom and Gomorrah where they do what's right in their own eyes. Uh, and, Lord, we just pray that we... Um, we can save every single soul we can like Abraham did, Lord. We can just pray for each person and, and, and uh, that you would spare them uh, that judgment, Lord, so that they have the opportunity to come to you. Um, help us to have patience with sin in our life, Lord. Not that we love sin or that we want sin, Lord, but to be patient with other people that struggle with it and to overlook the sin and see the heart that you would have saved, um, that we would... Um, care for that sinner, Lord, and not care too much about what what failings they have in front of you, because that's between you and them, Lord. Help us to just point them to you um, and to have grace and peace and love for those people, Lord, to embrace and, and um, take their spirits, Lord, that are hurting and broken and help them to be healed, Lord. And may your Holy Spirit help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Shadow. We're all done. Amen.